Hello, everyone. Quick update. The podcast has moved. We have a new website, which is www.lionrock.life slash courage to change podcast. Again, that's www.lionrock.life slash courage to change podcast. And our new email address is podcast at lionrock.life. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe and I am your host. Today we have Whitney Horn. Whitney grew up outside of Atlanta, Georgia. She was adopted at birth along with her younger sister, Hayden. Her struggle with an eating disorder surfaced in middle school around the same time her sister's struggle with substance use began. Whitney shares her sister's painful and tumultuous path through addiction, which ultimately led to her unfair and untimely death at the young age of 19. She shares amazing insight into taking steps forward after incredible loss and grief and shares the truth about adoption and how families can navigate that journey successfully. Whitney is a single mom to her amazing son, and they both share a deep love for animals. It was so wonderful to have Whitney on the podcast. She is just such a light and brings authenticity and a real voice to issues around adoption and the beauty in adoption and also the darker sides of it. I think it's really important that we talk about all aspects of things. And so talking about all the different aspects of adoption something that happens quite frequently in this country should be on the table as well. I know that when I went to treatment, so many of the kids that I was in rehab with had been adopted and it was definitely a source of conflict for them. You are about to hear Whitney and Hayden's story and I hope it gives you a deeper look into some of the topics around adoption and substance use that we should be talking about more openly. Without further ado, I give you episode 69. Let's do this. Whitney, welcome to the Courage Change. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, You have made a lot of your life's mission about bringing awareness to the difficulties that adopted kids struggle with. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I don't want to give off the impression that adoption is negative. Um, I think it's a very positive, beautiful thing, but it's complicated. And there um, are definitely issues that adoptees face on a higher scale. And I think that if, if it was a topic that was more openly discussed and not something that people were afraid to bring up, especially adoptees, they're, we're very afraid to like say anything negative, especially it's so ingrained. So many people will tell you as a child, like you're so lucky to be adopted. And then you kind of have this, these thoughts in your head that you don't want to share because it, it is negative. You don't want to put a negative side on something that that is usually such a happy, beautiful story. So I, I do feel like it's something that people need to discuss more. It needs to be brought up and and not so such a shameful topic, I guess. 
It seems like there's also a place for parents who adopt kids because like I could see adopting and thinking to myself, you know, I chose you. Like I I chose, you know, I chose you and and I could have chosen, you know, anyone else and but it was you cuz you, you know, I want to give this to you and how here how feeling like if you are wondering about your or your birth parents, am I not doing a good enough job as 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 your adoptive parent or if I didn't have the tools or the skills as the adoptive parent to navigate this, these questions that come up for you, I might get my feelings hurt, which would kind of project onto you wanting to be you as the adopted child wanting to be careful around my feelings. Right. And I think it goes both ways. You have the, the child trying to be so careful not to hurt the parents and the parents trying to be so careful not to hurt the kids and not to take things personally, but they do take things personally. And a lot of it comes down to just not communicating and being afraid of that communication. Um, And adoption has changed. It is constantly changing. You know, I think a hundred years ago, it was very taboo to tell the child that they were adopted. You, that was a family secret. Nobody talked about it. The child grew up thinking that they were biological um, children and what do you then, think about that? Oh, I mean, that's definitely not the way to go because it almost always comes out eventually. And then there's, that's a whole nother trauma of, okay, I've been lied to my entire life. Um, it's very, it, very unsettling. It, it, that never turns out well. Um, and okay. I think most okay. people figure it out eventually. And then you had, you know, a huge period of time where it was all closed adoptions you didn't hear about open adoptions. And then now you have this open adoption, which it's good to see. It's good to see like everything's evolving and kind of changing. So I do think we're on like the right path of kind of figuring it out and how to better go about adoption and how to make it better for the adoptee, the adoptive parents and the the birth families. You know, it's, there's three parts and it's, it's complicated for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I also was thinking that, you know, with 23 and me these days, those types of secrets are not going so well. You have, you have those secrets, you have the affair secrets, you have all that stuff and it's just not, it's not doable anymore. My poor birth family, I have found um, a couple of relatives they didn't know about. So it was like, (laughs) surprise, I'm here and surprise, here's some more. Yeah, exactly. I've also brought other family members. Oh, you you can see my Mastiff in the back. He's so cute. He's uncomfortable. His legs are in the (laughs) air. (laughs) Um, So you were adopted and you had a younger or older sister? So I had a younger sister. Younger sister, okay. You you adopted, and then your younger sister Hayden, and it, but it different families, different families. So my family was on a waiting list for adoption, which it still takes quite a while. Your so they, you, the my parents, adoptive family. Got it. So when I say my family or my parents, I'm always talking about my adoptive family. If I say birth family or bio family, then I'll, you know, put put that in the front. So my parents had been on a waiting list. And a friend of a friend contacted them and said they were also on a waiting list for adoption. And their coworker had a daughter that was 14 and gotten pregnant. 
and they were going to, um, back then, the birth mother did not get to decide at that age, she had no say whatsoever. So you were usually sent away, you had the baby. That wasn't the, that long ago. I know, just the 80s. I know, you were like, back then, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> way back then. Way back then, I'm like, the yeah. didn't say Wow, okay. Yeah. So they were trying to comfort her and say, you know, we'll find a friend to take the baby because she didn't want to give me up for adoption. Um, she'd actually hidden the pregnancy till the very end. I think it was like three months before. So they, uh, they contacted a lawyer and the lawyer said, you absolutely, like I said, back then it was only closed adoptions and open adoptions was not like a concept. So they were, the lawyers were like, no, you can't adopt out a child to somebody, you know, it'll complicate things. It's a big mess. Don't do it. And she said, well, I have a friend that's also looking to adopt a baby. So they had contacted my parents and I didn't know any of this until I was in my twenties. My parents had said, oh, we don't know anything about your birth family. And lo and behold, they actually knew who they were and all these details. Yeah. So they, um, contacted my parents and my parents adopted me. And then they got a call about my sister when her birth mother was pregnant and had decided to give her up for adoption. So we were pretty close in age. I think it's like about 19 months. And, uh, your, your sister was, did that happen when she was a new, an infant as well? It was right out, out of, you know, so it's, it's a bit complicated. <laughs> so <laughs> use that word constantly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're here um, to talk complicated. Yeah. So the adoption agency had put them in contact with my sister's birth mother and she was in poverty. And so my grandparents had actually offered for her to come and stay with them through the pregnancy, which is they say, don't do that. Um, like I said, back then it was closed adoption, but and that did turn into a big mess. It was a very messy situation. So she was from Florida. Did she want to keep your sister? No, but it's kind of like once you start providing for somebody, sometimes they're going to take advantage of the situation. And then Georgia, I don't know, it could have changed. My friends that have adopted have said that it's the same, but Georgia has its uh, like a 10-day period where you can't adopt the baby in case the mother changes her mind. So different states are different. So a lot of people will actually go to another state to adopt so that they don't have to have that waiting period. So Georgia has that waiting period. And like I said, I don't know about where my sister was in that 10 days. Usually they'll back then they would send you to a home. So it was a home kind of like a foster home for that 10 day period. And there's a lot of, uh, speculation is, you know, is that part of the big trauma that goes with adoption? Those first days are critical to bond with your mother and to kind of be in this like little limbo situation. You don't know what kind of care, you know, where you just kept in a bed and kind of given a bottle when you needed it and then just ignored. Or um, there are a lot of studies about babies in orphanages yep. and yep. Um, they just stop. Crying. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have that those studies on adopted babies and this little like transition period, but I'm assuming it's kind of the same results, the same kind of situation. So I'm not sure where my sister was in her transition period. I know that I was in a home for those 10 days. So she goes to that and, and now her, you know, your 
um, birth mother was 14 and she, the choice was made for her, was your sister's birth mother. She had some serious mental illnesses, if I'm not mistaken. So our parents growing up told us that um, the only things that they knew about our birth parents was that um, my birth mother was young, that she was a cheerleader and that she was tall. And she's like five, six. <laughs> I grew up thinking that she was this like insanely tall lady. <laughs> she's six, uh, five. Yeah. <laughs> and then my sister, they said that they did. I think they did tell us that they knew that she had other siblings. And then she was from Florida and that she gave her up for adoption because of poverty. Um, so those are the, that's what, that's all we knew. Do you think that the, the description of your birth mothers, like your mom was a cheerleader and she was young and tall and, you know, you, you get to make up and then your mom was in poverty. Do you think that, I mean, obviously this is serious Monday morning quarterbacking, but do you think that any of that play, like, did you think a lot about that, that your mom was tall and that she was like, maybe your sister thought a lot about that too? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when that's all you have to go on, you're just like right. obsessed. And I did try to be a cheerleader, but I'm horrible at coordination. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get those genes. <laughs> like, oh, it's not genetic. Um, no. And and this, and this was all in, in Georgia. You grew up in Georgia. Yes. Okay. And, and tell me a bit about the Cabbage Patch Kids story. So my parents always told us that we were adopted, but I guess when I was about, I guess I was four and Hayden was three, they kind of sat down with us and said like, you know, we know you know that you're adopted, but we want to better explain it to you. And that's kind of when they told us those weird random facts about our birth parents. And then, um, they explained adoption and we were just like, they were expecting us to be devastated and, you know, trying to comprehend this and there would be tears. And my sister and I were just sitting there like staring at them and they get done with this big, you know, I'm sure they spent days oh, yeah. planning, you know, how oh, they're yeah. going to explain it to these two little PowerPoint. girls. And yeah. Like I'm sure my mom uh, read books. And so they just sat there. Like, I remember them staring at us and we both looked at each other like, we're Cabbage Patch Kids. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> and we asked them, you know, like, do you remember Xavier Roberts? Like, did he come to the house, like, and personally deliver us? Or did you have to go to Babyland and get us? Like, and they tried to say, like, yeah, that's not really, like, that's kind of pretend. But we were just so, we refused to believe any of that. Like, you guys are, that's a lie. Like, y'all are keeping that a secret that we're Cabbage Patch Kids. Right, so. right. You just don't want us to know. Do you think... Was there any thoughts about the fact that you and Hayden weren't biological sim- siblings, or this was probably was probably like way out of the realm of things you guys thought about? I've always felt my family is my family. I've never felt that I didn't belong, and maybe I'm just really lucky. I am in some support rooms, uh, support groups with some adoptees, and a lot of them don't have that experience. Like my cousins. And my adoptive family, like they are like siblings. We are so close. Um, I was telling Christiana when somebody says like blood is thicker than water, I always think in my head, like, I don't, I don't think so. Like I have, and I have a beautiful relationship with my birth family and my, I guess, blood family, but I don't think that's any more special or any more of a connection than I have with my adoptive family. So no, I all, we felt like sisters, like we did 
didn't look anything alike. I don't look anything like my adoptive family. My sister kind of did. She had blonde hair and she definitely looked more like them, but I did not. But I didn't. I had the curiosity of wanting to see somebody that looked like me. Like I was very curious about like, does my birth mom look like me? When you go to a store or you're in public, you're always looking at people going, is that like, could that be my birth mom? When I was in high school, I was terrified to date anybody. <laughs> I was like, what if it's my brother? <laughs> oh my gosh. I so you don't, yeah, that. you do look around a lot like, okay, you kind of look similar. Could we be related? Right, right. Such an interesting thing that, you know, isn't something that I thought about. I ne- never, I mean, my my mother and I do not look alike in terms of, you know, she's blue eyes, blonde hair, really tall. And, you know, it just never occurred to me. It so was funny. People would try to sell stuff to my mom and I, and they would be like, oh, you guys look so much alike, mother and daughter. And we would always look at each other and just laugh. Like, okay, obviously you're just trying to sell us something because we don't look <laughs> anything alike. You're like, I know you're trying to sell something. Yeah. That's funny. So you, you, okay. So third and fourth grade, Hayden writes a story that gets a lot of attention. Do you, do you remember this well? I was a little jealous back then. I was, I'm very much a perfectionist and always trying to be like the best at everything. So I do remember being a little like jealous of all the attention she had got. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm adopted too. I got stories. <laughs> so she um, did this story. And I think it was like one of those contests you do where there's a winner for the whole school. And then all the schools send their winners to the state. And then I think she won, like, I think it was a national when so like a very big deal and she I, I have the paper somewhere um oh, man as the older sibling you must have been so like <laughs> good for you there, yeah did you ever see bridesmaids yes I love that <laughs> you know when she's in the she's like good for you I think that's how I would be the whole time okay anyway it was because she was always the like cute funny uh she was good at a lot of things and I was just good at school so it was kind of like, right. so this is yeah. my territory. Yeah. Uh, pretty sure this is my thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, so I didn't pay a lot of attention back then, but yeah. <laughs> you know, after now, I'm like, now I'm proud of her. <laughs> right. Right. It took a little while. So um, I think it was called the gift and she um, wrote the story about her birth mom giving her like this, this gift of life and how grateful she was for her. And was it, where did you think like third or fourth grade, that's very young. Where do you think she, where, like, did it reach into anything? What did it illuminate anything that was going on with her? So I was kind of stunned, um, not, not just jealous, but like she had these like very negative feelings about adoption. Like she, she used to say that she didn't want anything to do with trying to find her birth parents, um, that she had a lot of anger towards her birth mom and it, you know, very much felt abandoned and rejected. So it was almost like, I feel like she was kind of writing the story based on what, which adoptees do. She wrote this story based on what she thought that people wanted to hear and what people tell you. Like I said, when you're an adoptee, like you hear it all the time, like you are so lucky you were chosen and, it's basically that's like the kind of the story she wrote. So I think she was trying to like make everyone around her feel this this warm fuzzy feeling that she wanted to feel, but I don't think she did. 
and to get so many accolades for it too. Yes. You know, the reinforcement of Mm -hmm. good, this is how you should feel. We, We acknowledge this feeling. That's pretty powerful. And then a year later, you started to struggle with food. What did that look like? So our uh, parents got divorced when I was in second grade and Hayden would have been in first grade. So there was a lot of chaos and then uh, eating disorders, just like addiction, it's a very higher rate in adoptees. So adoptees are known for having this uh, drive for perfection, just trying to, to be perfect, to prevent rejection is basically what it comes down to. And this lack of control, you couldn't control your birth. You want to be this perfect person. So eating disorders are very common. So around that time, it just kind of, I guess everything felt out of control. I started getting a little bit bullied in school where people would say you're fat. And then I I look back and I'm like, oh my God, like I thought I was this like huge child and it's, it's crazy. Um, so that kind of started then. And my mom, it was an aerobics instructor for Richard Simmons. He started in Georgia. (laughs) And, uh, so, you know, we were very like fitness dieting kind of family. So it just kind of just came naturally, I guess, with every, all the other factors in there. Did the divorce Was there any thought about like, oh, I can't stay in any family or, you know, families just don't work around me or, or did Hayden absorb any of that? So I was always a mama's girl and Hayden was a daddy's girl. So she did not handle the divorce well at all. And she would get furious at my mom for dating. You know, I remember her telling my stepdad the classic, like, you'll never be my father and she did not take it well at all. She was, you know, now that you mentioned that, yes, she probably was internalizing that feeling of being rejected again and, and okay, this family's not working out either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that that would be a lot of those things would be, especially if, if you're already struggling with it, if you're already looking for that narrative out in the world, like who's going to reject me, you know, that that would, that would come up. When you saw Hayden struggling with this stuff, and you had, did you have private conversations with her? Like, no, this is a good thing. Or was your, did you try to help her see your perspective ever? I did. I'd be like, are you sure you don't want to like try to find out? Like, you know, let's, I just wanted to see pictures was really what I wanted to see. I just wanted to know where like my genetics came from, I guess. And um, I didn't, I never had like hate towards my birth mother. I, or I don't remember having those emotions. I did have like the feeling of rejection and issues. Like I still struggle with those kind of issues, wanting to like fit in being, you know, if one of my friends gets mad at me. I go into this like deep state of like, Oh my God, like they'll never talk to me again. Like we're, so I do have those issues, but I, she had like outright like anger and so much pain feeling abandoned and rejected. Did she ever try to reach out to her, to her, you know, you said she wasn't curious about her, her birth family, but then at some point she became curious, right? Right. So I have, I do have some guilt where I had said, let's snoop and look around and try to find information about our birth parents. Like there's gotta be something. How old are you? 
I was trying to figure that out. I think it had to have been after the divorce. So it was probably around uh, fifth grade. Okay. So really young. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, like I said, up until that point, that was all we knew about our birth, birth parents was those little facts. And I was going in it. Like I felt like a detective and I was so excited when she was like, yeah, let's do this. So we like went through files and boxes and I got to the point where I was like, Oh, we're never going to find anything. But then we found a phone bill and some notes were written on it about how um, the birth mother had been using back then, you know, when you had a landline and you made a long distance phone call, it was very expensive. So it was a copy of a phone bill and every phone call that she had made while she was at my grandparents was circled with the price of the phone call uh, for my parents to reimburse them. And by going through those phone numbers, we figured out which one was her number and, or the one that she called the most. And I was like, Oh, we, you know, let's call it now. Like I, I was, I was excited. And I mean, kind of art, that's some serious detective work. Yeah. I'm proud. impressed. I'm, 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 I am impressed. <laughs> and we were so good. We put everything back like perfectly. So my parents had no idea and we didn't tell them. Because obviously at that point we were like, oh my gosh, she stayed with our grandparents. Like they obviously know a lot about this lady, not that she was just from Florida and that she was poor. Like they knew her and nobody told us this. It was like, okay, our grandparents didn't tell us. That means our aunts and uncles knew. That means like everybody knew. And like I said in the beginning, adoptees, it's always going to come out. You're always going to find out the lie. So there was that betrayal too of like, wow, they've been keeping this from us. And she was like, no, I don't want to call the number. And I was like, what? Like, you don't want to call the number. And I wasn't going to do it. Like, I was very tempted to. But she just acted like she didn't want to do it. She told me she would tell me if she did. But she, like, I would ask her periodically. And she would say, no, I still don't want to call the number. Well, come to find out in therapy later, she admitted that she actually called the number that night. And her birth mother answered. Apparently it was the, I think the sister, her birth mother's sister's home, but the birth mother stayed there when she was around. And the birth mother said that she was super excited to hear from her and, you know, just so happy that she called. And she said, I can't talk right now. I'll call you back another time. And I guess Hayden waited maybe two days and she hadn't called and she called the number back and it had been disconnected, which was like, okay, this number had been around, I guess at that age, she was probably 10. So it's like, okay, they had this number for 10 years and then they disconnected it. And she just knew that it was because of her. And it was just, um, nobody knew that she had done this. Nobody knew that she was going through these feelings, but it was just this, horrible feeling of rejection again and just, you know, not being wanted and um, being abandoned again. And she, so didn't, that's, she didn't bring that up until rehab. Right. Mm-hmm. So none of us knew about it until rehab. And my parents were, my dad was pretty mad at me. He was like, it was your idea. And, you know, it's like, yeah, but <laughs> it's normal. That's what you do when you're adopted. And if you guys hadn't kept the secrets from us and we wouldn't have had to do this. Right. Well, so the, my question about that is, was she visibly or did she express any upset about the secret that was kept? Like you said, all these aunts and uncles and, you know, grandparents and everybody knew when you guys had this realization, 
Was there any affect change? Did she discuss it at all saying, how could they do this? So once we knew the details, then we realized we would start catching the slip ups. So we couldn't tell family members, like, like you would kind of hear stuff about, you know, they would just kind of slip up every once in a while. And we would be thinking in our head, like, okay, that's because this or that happened because they knew more information. Um, and then slowly family members would start kind of sharing stuff. Like, so since we knew this part of the real story and when they would kind of slip up, we would know to like ask more questions to kind of try to be like, Mm. um, so eventually like some of the family members did tell us, but, um, I, I think we were both really hurt that they had lied. So you were hurt on behalf of her. I was mad, you know, like, okay, well, obviously, and I was right. You know, I was thinking like, there must be more to my story that I don't know. So it definitely made me even more curious and more snooping and trying to figure it out. But I didn't figure out my story until college. So, so Hayden, do you see a downward spiral after this? I mean, okay. So like of a direct, as a direct result, Mm -hmm. what did that look like? So she started acting out a lot. I think a lot of it was like for attention. It's kind of when you feel so rejected you're going to do anything to get people to pay attention to you. Like that makes sense. <laughs> and you know, she just, yeah. Bad, any attention is better than any attention. But. <laughs> a, a, a negative attention is better than no attention. Yes, exactly. So yeah, you could see that her acting up and stuff. Can I just stop for one second and say that, first of all, thank you for being here and sharing this. I know this stuff isn't easy. Second of all, with your snooping skills, I would have been afraid to date you. (laughs) I am so, my friends, every time they start dating somebody, they're like, here's the name. Let us know what you find. (laughs) I'm so impressed. This was what, the eighties? And you, you're like, oh, well, we figured out that this was the phone calls. They were being reimbursed. What are you like? Eight, 10? We were, I was 10. She was probably nine. I am so impressed. Oh, it, we were good. I'm so Our impressed. Our are really good. That's yeah, still, that's, that's one of the positives. I'm we're just saying, good. I'm just saying, I, I, I would imagine no boyfriends got away with anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> Amazing. There was no Facebook, no Instagram. So she, she, you, did you make the, I mean, you were a smart 10 year old making these connections. Did you make the connection that Hayden was really adversely affected by this information? So I didn't know, even though you didn't know she called like, but yeah, but I'd already known that she, like, we, we only talked about our true feelings about adoption to each other. So it was never something we discussed with our parents. It was never something we discussed with our friends, maybe later in life, but like as children, we only felt safe talking to each other. And I knew that she did have like a lot of anger, a lot of, rejection because she didn't even like to talk about it with me very long before she would get so she didn't get emotional because she didn't want to show those emotions but where she would get so I knew that she was getting so upset that she couldn't talk she would just shut it down yeah so she starts to get in trouble and how does this show up um, in her grades? Did you did she start to do things at school? What when do you think she started using? Because that was ultimately where it headed. So in sixth grade, she which is 
a struggle for everybody here. Yeah. Kind of thrown in. To I, this no one comes of, out know, of trying to be popular. No one comes out of middle school normal. It's just not possible. No. So she had gotten in trouble for telling people at school that she took speed. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and the school called my parents and she got in big trouble. And then it actually turned out to be caffeine pills. So that was like a whole nother deal of where she was embarrassed and um, got made fun of that she had gotten to, I think she got suspended. Like she got in all this trouble for speed and it wasn't even speed. She could, could she appeal? No. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying like, you know, that you get, she got a, it, that's a hearsay. Yeah. So, and it was a shock. Like my parents were just crazy shocked. Did um, How did they find, so they were, she was telling everybody I did speed, I did speed. And then what, why was there, she, she said, oh, it was these pills or something. And they found them. Well, so she had still had the pills ah. that, and they looked up um, what they the were pills or what. Yeah, yeah. And it was caffeine pills. And what did your parents think? Like, oh, she's just because this was uh, sixth grade. So how old are you? In they school? were furious, and at They're that mad. point, okay. yeah, she had been having a lot of trouble in school. She didn't really care about school. She just cared about like her social life. You know, just making friends and and being with friends. She didn't care about school at that point. How did it escalate? Like, what did it look like um, as it started to escalate? So she definitely had an issue of like, she would do anything to impress people. So if she thought it was going to impress someone, she was going to do it. And we lived in a very affluent area where drugs were a plenty. Any kind of drug you wanted, you could get within minutes. Uh, So once high school hit, that was kind of like where it's like just, you know, our high school is basically a pharmacy where you could just get whatever you wanted. And she, my mother had had heart surgery and had some pretty strong pain medication that she never took. And Hayden wanted to be cool and um, drugs were cool. So she brought the pills to school. I don't think she'd ever taken pain medication before that. So I don't know how many of the pills that she took and she was passing them out. I mean, I think it was a full bottle of pills. So she handed a lot out. She took a lot and I guess like passed out in school where it was, it was obvious that something was wrong. So I, I was trying to remember all the details, but I'm pretty sure the, so there was an ambulance. They took her from school to the hospital and then directly to the first stint of rehab. Did you go to the same high school? We did. So, um, well, we did for a while. She did at some points go to an alternative high school. Yeah. And then she went to, she went to Arkansas to live with an aunt where she went to school there. And then for a period of time, she went to a private school. So she, she went to a lot of schools. Yeah. Yeah. She got held back quite a few times. So there, I think, you know, there was five years of, of trying to get her into school. She was held back a couple grades, so multiple grades. So she was held back her freshman year. And then I don't know if they don't, if they call it being held back or um, just not finishing high school. So she was trying to do like the alternative school and she had gotten in so much trouble at that public school that I don't think that they would allow her back. Yeah. I went to alternative school. It was great fun. Yeah. She's 
She had a good time. Yeah. I was was like, wait, is this punishment? Uh, Because I like it a lot. She she loved it. Yep. Yeah. They don't exactly make it undesirable. So things started to, to get worse. She was stealing a lot and... How how did her downward spiral affect you? What were the things that you were thinking when that was happening? Did you have any idea what was coming? I definitely was scared. There was a few times where we actually got into like fist fights because I was so angry with her. And we, you know, I had my own issues. So a lot of times I felt like, okay, everybody's just focused on since sixth grade, this drug addiction that my sister has and all these behavioral problems. The stealing was a huge thing. She started that at a pretty young age. So she would steal from family first, um, especially me. And she even told the therapist later in life that, you know, she was so mad at me for never getting into trouble that that was her way of punishing me. was by like stealing. When people say, oh, my sister used to steal some of my clothes. I'm like, this used to wipe out my closet. (laughs) And she would give it away. And oh, so like, it would get stolen and gone. It wasn't. Oh yeah. Cause I'm thinking my sisters steal my clothes and it would be in their closet. No, it was to the point where my mom had, so my mom had remarried and she, they had to put deadbolts on every single door in the house. So we all had keys to our rooms cause that's how bad the the theft was. Um, and then of course, once she got to high school, she was stealing alcohol. And so there was a liquor cabinet that had its own lock on it. All of our bedrooms had their own locks on it. It was a big issue. She was stealing from stores. She would steal from friends. My mom constantly got phone calls from other parents like, okay, my daughter said that Hayden stole this or that. And that definitely created a lot of tension with her and everybody in the family, because it was this, you know, she would say, nobody trust me. And we'd be like, how can we trust you? (laughs) You know, you, you steal from us. Like, um, there was lots and lots of friction. Yeah. We didn't get along very well during that time. How did she respond to like, clearly everybody knew it was her. How did she respond? Did she ever, did she admit to it or did she say, I mean, what was the she would not admit to it. So she would, I would be like, Oh my gosh, this is gone. Like, I know you have it. No, I don't. I know. And then I would get my mom to be like, okay, fine. We'll look in her room. And she would just be standing there and it's like, okay, it's right here. And you know, she didn't really, it was definitely a disorder. Like it wasn't, yeah. Yeah. it was more, it wasn't just the stealing. I think it was the thrill of stealing the kind of control of people like that was kind of her way of to get back at them. Right. So like real kleptomania. Yeah. Like just legit. Did she go to therapy or anything for that? Um, they definitely addressed it once she started going to therapy for the drugs. Like she actually brought it up, but she had gotten in trouble from, for stealing from stores, uh, where she was stealing thousands of dollars worth of stuff and she would stop for a little while and then, you know, she would start again. So it was definitely something that the therapist knew about. Yeah. Yeah. And she starts dating a drug dealer who is her, I have her boyfriend's best friend. Is that, how does, so she, I take she it they're no the, longer friends. <laughs> well, so she had started dating a guy in high school that was like a very, serious relationship and they got addicted to heroin and I'm, you know, I'm sure it was oxys first and then heroin. 
but so they got addicted together. And my family, of course, has very ill feelings towards him. I mean, I think he was genuinely in love with my sister. I think they got into this addiction together. I don't think it was a, you know, they did it to each other. So it was actually his best friend that once they broke up, Hayden started dating the best friend that was providing her with a lot of the drugs. And uh, what happened in 03? So they left a party and they were drunk, high on multiple things. And it was raining. It was pouring. And they were speeding down this very, very busy street in East Cobb. And they hydroplaned and went into oncoming traffic. It's amazing that nobody else died. It was an older car. They didn't have their seatbelts on, but they actually said that even if they had their seatbelts on, they probably wouldn't have made it. And then also where the airbags were supposed to be had been pulled out and those compartments were full of drugs. So there was no airbags, but again, they said that the, the speed and the collision were so bad that they don't think that they would have survived that way either. And how old were you when that happened? I was 20 and she was 19. Okay. And she had she been living with your family? Um, so she ran away quite a bit. So during this time, she it wasn't like running away, living on the streets. A lot of people in our community would, you know, she was very good at telling them a sob story and they would let her live with them until she would steal and then they would kick her out and then she would go somewhere else. So I don't know. She lived in so many different places, just kind of couch surfing. Um, So I don't know where she was living at that time. I was in college and my roommate and I, who I've known for ever, like she grew up with us. So she was actually my sister's friend before she was my friend. So we had planned a girl's night. We were all in this like happy, good mood. We were going to stay home, probably watch sex in the city. (laughs) And then the phone rings and I just, I, it was, there's been an accident, just kind of that dreaded phone call scene that you you see on movies. It was just, it was this, there's, there's been an accident and nobody telling me anything. And I just crumbled to the floor and my three roommates who were my best friends just, I mean, they were just crowded around me and it was just this, kind of, I knew it was going to happen. I had just told her two weeks before that like I couldn't be close to her because I couldn't hold her hand while she was slowly killing herself. So I I knew, I knew it was going to happen, but there's still nothing, no matter how much you think something's going to happen, you can never be prepared for something like that. And she, um, they took her to the hospital. My parents went and she was already dead, but you know, they went and said their goodbyes. My roommate drove me home. Like I said, it was pouring rain. We were driving from Athens, which is about an hour and a half drive, just pouring rain, driving home. My, nobody was there when I got to the house. So I just kind of went in her, she still had a room in both of our parents' homes. And it was just a, a surreal, surreal feeling. My mother was completely devastated and didn't get out of bed. My dad was angry. He was so angry. He's still so angry. They did not get along at all. So 
basically we would sit down to like plan the funeral and they're just, Oh, your parents. uh, Yeah. They're butting heads. My stepdad and my dad, you know, butting heads and everybody would storm out of the room. And I remember just being left with the funeral director at one point and just going, okay, well, I guess I'm going to plan this. So, you know, I remember going through the books and picking all the stuff out and sometimes they would come in for a minute and, you know, sometimes my mom would have to leave because she was just so upset or fighting and it was just a mess. I remember keeping it together, you know, just kind of barreling through trying to get through this. I don't remember a lot about the funeral. It's kind of a fuzzy, fuzzy time. Yeah. Trauma. Yeah. Super traumatic. And, uh, did his family, did you know his family or, or any of them Did they reach out? At first they said he was going to survive. He ended up dying at the hospital that night. And then, um, no, his family never reached out. I had a lot of friends. She had a lot of friends that were very close to him. So I have to kind of, sometimes I feel like I have to be careful because a a lot of them were just as upset. And it's like, you know, a lot of my family looks at him like, well, he's just a, you know, drug addict that killed her daughter, but it's, she was a drug addict too. So she chose, she chose to get into that car. You know, she chose that lifestyle. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I hear a lot of people really struggle with when there's a a relationship, uh, you know, a person in the relationship that's, and there's a using relationship. It's like, well, they're just a horrible drug addict. And lo and behold, you know, their loved one is in that same, in in that spot too. I'm so sorry for your loss and, um, you know, what you, you went through. And I I can't even imagine I um, was sitting thinking my sister, when I went off to treatment, I don't even know which time. And my sister, who's two years younger than me, stopped speaking to me. And she said, you are killing yourself. You're going to die. I know that. And I am not going to remain close to you so that I can be devastated while this happens. And she did not speak to me until I was sober a couple of years, um, including when I overdosed and they weren't sure whether or not I was going to make it. She did not come to the hospital. And, and so, you know, years later when we, you know, we're close now and years later when we have that conversation, you know, she talks about how she just couldn't, couldn't stay up close to it because she knew how it would end. And that until she knew it was going to be something different that she just emotionally, she could not withstand. And, you know, when you're the addict and you're the alcoholic and you're in that whirlwind, nobody else's pain matters. You know, that's, that's, you know, when you're, when, when my experience in being your sister is nobody else's pain mattered. And I couldn't fathom that anyone else had as much pain or I, that as I did. And when I came out of it, when I stepped away, one of the things I've realized is that I was numbing myself through all of my pain and everybody around me was not. Everybody around me remembers all of it. And I do not, I do not. I had anesthesia the entire way because that was the goal. And my family had to stand by sober and experience complete loss of control. And I just had no idea. I just had no idea. And I, and at the time, you know, at the time I just couldn't 
I had no ability to see outside my own feelings, none. And so I, you know, I, I have such a soft spot for families and what families go through now seeing that and having doing, you know, I did interventions for a while and um, spending time with the families because we have, we as the addict, we don't get it. We have no idea. We think that nobody's pain can be as much as ours and we're just doing this to ourselves. Why are you so upset? You were, I'm just hurting myself. I'm not doing anything to you. You have everything together. You isn't life perfect for you. You just like to look down on me. But all the things that we think and we just have no idea. We just don't, we can't. It's not It's not within reach. And having been sober a long time and having it be in reach now and having little kids of my own, I mean, what the families go through is as traumatic, if not more traumatic as what... Um, we as the the substance user go through. So, you know, and, and, and then having to plan the funeral. And, um, I had, uh, I've had other friends who's, you know, when the, when the, when that happens and the family is broken apart, you know, someone has to show up. And so the amount of healing and, and showing up that you had to do in those moments is just huge. How did you find your way from that kind of, I'm sure, numb <laughs> and fuzzy and, oh my God, and why can't the grownups, why can't people just show up? Why, why, why? How did you, and how did you get from, you know, there to maybe a more understanding of where you are today? I definitely escaped for a while. Like I was glad to live in another city away from it all. And I went into just kind of a denial period for a little bit. I, I would get drunk and then, you know, all of a sudden become emotional and from holding all this stuff in, I did start seeing a therapist about a year later and she had diagnosed me with PTSD and had said, you know, it was kind of like just everything hit at once and it had been a year. So it was like a year's worth of all this stuff, not to mention like the the years before the death of all the the craziness and the constant, you know, she was what's what's going on with Hayden was always the our life. That that was our, you know, what we we lived around. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, this is Ashley Lowe Blasting Game. I am here to tell you that National Online Recovery Day will debut this year on September 22nd. In celebration, Lion Rock Recovery is sponsoring a live sober influencer panel on getting clean and staying connected. Join me as I moderate an hour-long interactive discussion with three prominent panelists live on the Lion Rock Recovery's Facebook page, September 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark it down. Visit www.nationalonlinerecoveryday.com for more event details. One thing I've said to my parents and my sisters I have, I have two younger sisters. I'm the oldest of three girls and uh, curious what you think about this. I've said to, that to my parents many times, which was that, you know, I had the biggest problem, but I didn't have the only problem. I wasn't the only one with problems. And so what happens in a family when you have someone who has the biggest problem, a life-threatening problem, well, even if it's asthma, it doesn't matter what that problem is, right? That person is in mortal danger on a regular basis the parents triage and 
they have, I can see it now, they have to. But what happens and what I saw and what I see is that, you know, I had the most life-threatening problem, but my sister certainly had other problems that needed attention that they didn't get. They couldn't get. There wasn't enough. There wasn't enough to go around. And I sucked all the energy out of everything, everyone and everything in the room. And, you know, I think it left my siblings to have to find their own way to deal with their problems when in other families, those things would have been addressed. Those would have been considered real issues, but that nothing could be considered a real issue compared to someone using heroin, someone, someone, you know, like nothing. And so coming out of that, um, you know, we've had time to heal, but I look back and think, you know, their healing was stunted as a result of my need. I I got well, right? I got recovery. I got to go to rehab. I got therapists. I got treatment. I got all these things and they didn't. And so they didn't start their recovery till a lot later. And I always think to myself, you know, how in some ways as a parent, it seems like an impossible decision and, and, and position to be put in, but that kids get left feel they must feel and get left behind. Yeah. And there's definitely a pressure. I felt like I had to be perfect. And my parents would sometimes even say it, you know, they'd be like, we're dealing with all of this right now. Like, we don't need you to do this right now. Right. Like we can't, we don't have any more left. Yeah. Like I was so good at hiding anything and just being this like perfect child, which also would upset my sister you know, it'd be this like division because she's like, why do you have to be so perfect? And I wasn't, I was definitely not perfect. I was just really, really good at hiding anything that wasn't perfect. And I put everything into school, you know, it's like, okay, well, she's getting honors role and, you know, taking college courses in high school. Like we don't have to worry about her. She's perfect and fine. But in reality, it wasn't that way. I was just very good at hiding did you have feelings about that later on? Did you, or did you explore them later on? For sure. So I'm a huge proponent of therapy. Um, I have been in therapy most of my adult life and you have to do it. Um, you, especially if you've had trauma, like you, I don't think I'll ever not have PTSD. Um, I don't, obviously eating disorders are like, any kind of addiction. It's, it's forever. I, I relapse. I, I have to stay in therapy or it just gets really easy to, you know, you'll, I've done it several times in my life at this point where I've been like, Oh, I'm fine now. Like I don't need help. Like I don't need to like continue this. And then it's always a mistake. So I've accepted the fact that I will always be in therapy. There's nothing wrong with it. I always try to tell my friends, like when they're going through something, like go to a therapist. Like it's, it's, and go until you find the right one. A lot of people will go and it's like, oh, it sucks. Well, just keep going till you, you know, you find the right therapist. It can, it can take quite a while, but you know, I've, I call it my team. I've got my nutritionist. I've got my, uh, psychologist or my psychiatrist. And then I've got my, uh, therapist. So. That's awesome. And, and what does your, what has your recovery looked like, um, through this, uh, you know, this process and your, your grief and, um, did your eating disorder come, you know, show up bigger after, um, Hayden passed? So of course, when you have 
you know, these body image issues. Like I don't like, uh, when I'm really in the thick of it, which is crazy when I'm, um, which hasn't been in a long time, but like when I lost so much weight, like I don't really let people like take photos or I won't, um, don't want to like look at myself, but then, you know, every once in a while I'll, I'll see something and it's like, holy crap. <laughs> like, so yes, I do after her, her death, I think in August, there was a photo like for my birthday party and I, my waist looks like just, you know, I just barely there. And it's, and then I look back on like, my mind doesn't remember being like that skinny. I assumed I was just extremely fat. So, but looking at photos, when I do see one from those times, it's, I think after her death, I was pretty bad about anorexia. And then I'll, I've had issues with bulimia and it just, I do, do end up relapsing a couple times a year, but I do stay in the the therapy so that when it does come back, then I'm on it immediately. And I've learned to be like very honest with my therapist and, you know, telling her everything just so that she can keep me on track and staying on top of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What conversations have you had with your parents around the topic of adoption since Hayden passed away? So it is that like uncomfortable topic where, um, (laughs) you know, you feel, you still feel guilty. I do try to tell them that it's okay to have these feelings. My, I think we have such a beautiful story of how we merged the birth family and my family. I was actually in the hospital two years after my sister died. I almost died from a blood clot. And I was in the hospital for about two months and they told my mom, they're like, we need her, her medical history. And my mom's like, well, she's adopted. And the doctor was like, we need her medical history. So that day, my mom's like, oh, I found your birth mom. And I was like, what? It's like, I've been like, you know, I'm a good detective. I didn't find her. Like, what do you mean you found her? And then that's when the story came out of well, it's actually a friend of a friend's uh, daughter is your birth mom. Uh, So then the next day, my birth family came to the hospital. Um, I was still in college and they actually lived near where I was going to college. And so it was this reunion. It was, you know, there was all these awkward things going on. And I felt so much sympathy for my mom because she had just lost her daughter you know, two years before she almost lost me. And then she's having to tell me the secret (laughs) that she's been keeping. And it was, I could understand, like, I just, I wasn't mad at her. I was just kind of like, God, she's been like, that had to have taken so much for her to be like, okay, well, here's this, I'm not even going to hesitate. Here's this information. And so I didn't have that like angry feeling. I kind of just felt bad, like that she had to feel like, you know, that she was obviously afraid for us to have a relationship, but it all went really well. My birth mom and I are super close. Like I said, she didn't have a choice. They, they scheduled a, um, induced labor like a week before school. So in August, so she could have me and then go back to school and nobody would know because she had been sent to live with a family member and they, they don't, back then she was not allowed to hold me. She wasn't allowed to see me, nothing. They, I was born and they whipped me out of the room 
And then she would go in and look on the glass and try to figure out, you know, like which, which baby was hers. So it was like this. I think when my mom heard that too, it's kind of like, well, she didn't get to, it wasn't necessarily her choice. And they've, I feel like they both respect and love each other. They have this very beautiful relationship. You know, my birth family comes to all my son's birthdays, family gatherings. My birth mom comes to Christmas at my dad's house and they all get along. And it's, I try to tell people a lot of families don't understand. Like it's, it's not like your birth family is going to replace your adoptive family or your adoptive family replaces your birth family. It's two completely different roles and you have enough space in your life to, if you choose to have both of those families in your life, there's not, it's not a competition. There's not a, you know, there's a big difference between a bio mom and your adoptive mom, like my mom. It's it's two different roles. It doesn't. There's not a choice between the two or a competition. Um, I have plenty of love for for both of them. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that that it's just a and it's helpful for you know to hear because I I would think you know I would insert my own <laughs> ideas about it, of course. And when you had your son, did you have any revelations, realizations, new feelings about parenthood and what? your adoptive and bio family has went through? I definitely did. It was also like super special for me because I wanted my mom to be with me through delivery. I know a lot of people don't want their mom in there. <laughs> and um, my ex-husband was is terrified of blood. So I knew he was not going to be any help. And my mom was like, what, are you sure you like want me in there? Like, you know, just, she was hesitant, but I, it was so important for me to have her there because we didn't get to go through a birth moment when I was born and I'm going to cry because we did get to go through this birth of my son. So we did get to share. We do have a birth story. We did get to share birth. It wasn't me being born, but we shared the moment of my son being born and it was super special and sweet and just perfect for my, my ex-husband wasn't exactly perfect in this situation, but my mom, my mom was, and she was, so it was just basically me and her <laughs> and that moment. Yeah. It, it was, she was there for your birth into motherhood, which is yeah a real transformation <laughs> as we all know, those of us who've been there and, and my mom was in the room as well. It was super important for me. And my, my husband was, uh, so I have three-year-old twin boys and um, my husband, <laughs> My husband's terrified of blood as well. And I told him, I said, if you need one minute of medical care while they are cutting me open, I will personally kick you in the face. Yeah. Uh, and so he he definitely was trying to keep it together. But at one point he was supposed to take some photos. My mom says she turns and looks at him and he is the the camera is like down at his side he's crying and like kind of looking like he doesn't know where he is <laughs> and i was like oh thank god my mom was there yeah <laughs> it's so awesome and and what a um what a cool thing to be able to have with her and and you know i would imagine that particularly with your mother your birth mother's story this idea that she wanted you and did 
and didn't have the choice. And then you having your own son and really experiencing what that could must've been like. In some ways, I would think, again, this is serious Monday morning quarterbacking, but I would think that that would bring this level of connection and compassion to between you two in the sense that she really did want you as opposed to someone who couldn't take care of you. It didn't, you know, an unwanted, you were not an unwanted pregnancy and you got to experience, you know, all of the feelings of wanting and, and now had such a better understanding. I would think that that would be a useful thing to understand in terms of like lack of rejection in the truest sense. Yeah. And I know a lot of adoptees don't feel that way. Um, or have that kind of like Hayden didn't have that same magical story. But I do think like for somebody to carry a child full term and give them up for adoption, there has to be some form of love. Like, and a lot of adoptees don't agree. But for me personally, I can't imagine somebody doing all that work and not caring at all. Um, And there's, you know, there's stories where, women were raped and it's this traumatic thing that they don't ever want to have anything to do with their birth child again. And I know that's got to be very, very difficult. I know for Hayden, when that rejection happened was very difficult. And later after she had passed away, her birth family actually found me through her um, obituary. They had found my name and uh, back then it was my space where they had contacted me and it was her sister and they had just found out about her, uh, the family, just again, those family secrets don't do it. They had just found out about her and she had a brother and they were trying to find, they were trying to be detectives and find Hayden. And instead they found out that she had died. So it was, they were heartbroken. It was, and it was, a hard moment for me to, and I was still very young when that happened. It was hard for me to process because it was like, Oh my God, if this, if she had known how much they wanted to meet her and, you know, her siblings would have been so happy to welcome her into their lives. But her mother was actually schizophrenic and had apparently abandoned a couple babies at hospitals. So Hayden was put up for adoption and, you know, she went and lived with my grandparents, but there were, there were other babies that, um, they don't know, you know, she was pregnant, she would go to a hospital and then she would come back and nobody knew what had happened. Uh, so that was really hard for her other children to, to understand, but the brother was very angry about the death. And when, after I spoke with him, I just couldn't handle it. So I didn't, have a relationship with them. I didn't speak to them again. And now I kind of regret it because now I'm in a place where I, I would love to like show them photos and, and share um, those moments with them. Cause I know how hard it is to not know and to, to feel like you're missing something. What do you feel? So we have this, I hear people say it all the time. They talk about, um, you know, if I can't have, you know, there's so many kids that need to be adopted talking about adoption as this really important thing that we do in society is that we take children into better situations. And with your experience, your perspective, having talked to a lot of people who've been adopted, what, what is your take on adoption? You know, that's 
<laughs> what is your take on <laughs> on child so, hunger? I mean, what what you know what what is have you come to any like realizations or ideas surrounding adoption and how it's done well and how it, maybe it should be done differently? It's definitely good to see it evolving, and it does evolve. When people say there's so many children that need to be adopted, those aren't babies. It's when you're trying to adopt a baby, you're on a waiting list. It's a profitable industry, which is really scary. There are other countries, and I know it happens in the U.S. too, but it's not as prevalent, but, you know, where women actually have babies to make money and not always by a choice. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely an industry that needs a lot of attention it's a subject that people do not like to talk about anything negative about adoption. It's only supposed to be positive. And usually, you know, when somebody's in that place where they're choosing adoption because they can't have biological children, that's it's a painful experience. I know my mom had a lot of pain that she couldn't have biological children. So it's a topic that, you know, you don't you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But it needs to be discussed because it's not going to get better unless we make it okay to talk about. I do. I, at first, when I heard about open adoption, I was thinking like, oh, that's never going to work. Like, that's really a bad idea. But now I see it as if there's rules and guidelines to kind of help where that relationship can happen I don't think like it should be a huge part of the children's life, like having these bio parents and trying to process all those relationships. It's really hard, like even at my age now to kind of have time for all these relatives. And I love them all. I love everybody, but it is, it's hard to, to kind of balance. It's a lot of family. (laughs) Yeah. But I think once a year, like to have, you know, even to do a video conference or um, to keep, photos would be huge. If I had had photos of my birth family growing up, it would have meant so much to me. And I think that's a lot of, there is that curiosity aspect for a lot of adoptees to kind of have that information at the very bare minimum would be huge. And then to also realize that like these addiction issues and depression, eating disorders, those are all issues that they've done studies where and most of them, it's you're twice as likely to have those issues if you're an adoptee. And I think adoptive families need to be prepared for that. It's easier to prevent something than it is to treat it. So if if they can open this dialogue and understand, too, that it's it has nothing to do with you when adoptees are asking about birth families. It's, it's totally not something that means you're less important or your role is less than like I said, it's completely two different, two different roles and it's okay to ask questions. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we make it okay to talk about and come more comfortable to say, like, there are some, some negative things. There are some negative feelings that come out of adoption, but it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to, to bring that up. Is there any therapy process that adoptive parents have to go through in terms of how to talk about these issues or do they get any support or guidance on this? They didn't back then. I think now some of 
agencies probably have like a process. Um, I know to adopt overseas, you have to go through a lot more red tape, but they should, there should be support groups where, you know, these families get together. If I had known an adult while I was an adoptee as a child that I could have had like this relationship with where I could have been comfortable bringing up these kind of feelings and questions, it would have been extremely, extremely helpful. So I would love to see like adoption agencies providing like support for the families and the kids and to connect these families because a lot of it is, is experience-based and, you know, sharing what, what you've been through and knowing what to look for in, in your adoptees. If you, if there is someone um, who's adopted, who's struggling with addiction, who's listening to this, what's something that you would like them to know? Like, I mean, I, I feel like I've touched on it a little bit, but just, you know, there's just that, that feeling of rejection. And when you really look at that, especially, I guess, after being a, a mom and going through the nine months of pregnancy, like you, there is some of that, that love. And in, and no matter if you're adopted or you're not adopted, nobody's childhood is perfect. There's no, and I think adoptees, a lot of times they think, I know my sister used to think like, okay, well, if my birth mom had me, life would be so much better. You know, she had this fantasy of, of what it would be like. And in reality, like her siblings did not have a good life. It wasn't this fantasy world. My birth mom immediately got pregnant again so that she could keep a child. And I know that they struggled with poverty because she was so young and she, she actually had three kids right after me. So, you know, they struggled. It wasn't a, we all think like the grass on the other side is greener kind of situation. And it's not like that. It's, there's going to be struggles no matter what your story is or, or how you started your life on this world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the work you're doing talking about this and, and being out there, and of course you help rescue or have been helping rescue animals, which is awesome and probably much easier to deal with. Um, <laughs> not always. Not always. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Fair enough. But yeah, I just think this is such an important topic. As I told you before we started, uh, many of the treatment centers that I went to, at least half of the people there had been adopted. And um, and I was always curious about that, why so many kids that I went to treatment with had been adopted and why we'd, we didn't even talk about that much in treatment, to be honest. They didn't even talk about it that much. So I think that this is just a really important topic and thank you for sharing your, your story with me and my listeners and, um, your truth. And I, I really appreciate that. And I think a lot of people will get a lot out of this freedom to be able to talk about the, the good and the bad as there is with everything. Everything. Yep. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting's schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.